Cornerstone. My name is Jorge. I serve as one of the pastors at Blueprint Church, and it's my joy to be able to bring to you God's word this morning as you're gathered together to worship. And what a, what a joy it is to know the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? It's the greatest joy of our lives to know him. But in knowing him, we get to know everything else better, right? We even get to know ourselves better. Knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, we know who we are. We know whose we are. We know where we're going and we know what we're, and we know what we're for. And I hope that God's word today helps us to increase our understanding of the Lord Jesus and even of ourselves. Um, so thank you. Thank you for the opportunity um, to be here. You know, experience should not drive our theology, our understanding of the Bible, but experience can help our theology. Experience can help our understanding of the Bible. For example, if you are a father in the room today, you understand something greater about the fatherhood of God after the experience of being a father yourself. Amen? So happy Father's Day. That's my Father's Day sermon. So moving on from there. Um, But in 2014, we as a nation went together through the experience of the events of Ferguson after um, the shooting and death of Michael Brown. During that time, during that experience, I was preaching through the book of Acts. And as these different themes were arising out of what was going on in the, in the culture, I began to see some of the same themes in the text. Ethnic strife, issues of justice, and how believers ought to witness during these things. And I, I, I think going through that experience at the same time as I was preaching through, especially the latter part of the book of Acts, helped me to see these things better. Since that occasion, or since then, I've had many opportunities, sadly, to talk about the things that have come out of that experience and that time in God's word. Um, And unfortunately, we have to kind of address some of these things again. But before we go to the text, let me introduce you to somebody that you think you know. Let me reintroduce the Apostle Paul for you. To us, we view the Apostle Paul as a powerful writer of words. And he was. Probably no one has has shaped the world we know more than his in his writings than the Apostle Paul. But in his day, he barely had a voice. We view Paul as the mighty missionary, which he was. But again, in his day, he would have been viewed as a marginalized minority. He is to us the colossal figure of the church. But as we read in the book of Acts, chapter 17 in particular, he was viewed as an inconsequential babbler. We view the Apostle Paul as the establisher of government authority. That's how we understand government in Romans 13. Um, But in the book of Acts, we see Paul as a challenger to the abuse of authority. And that's what we're going to think through this morning. So if you have your Bibles, um, let's turn there to the book of Acts, chapter 22. And we're going to read to begin with verses 22 
of chapter 22 through verse 29. So this is Paul. He has just, he's just been apprehended. There kind of a little uproar happened there in the temple area. Paul's literally being, being pulled by people, um, attacked. He gets, he gets arrested, he kind of gets rescued, and then he begins to address the crowd um, that, that is there um, attacking him. And he says some words to them. In verse 21, he says, What Jesus told them, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And up to this point, they were hearing him, right? In verse 22, up to this word, they listened to him because he was speaking in Hebrew, the language of his people. They were writing with him up until this point. But then when he said, like, I'm going to take this to the Gentiles, things changed. Verse 22, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying, that he should be examined by flogging. So if you don't know what flogging is, it's very painful. To find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I have been a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen, and he had bound him which was a very bad thing to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. Thank you that you have opened our eyes to behold the glory and the worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those of us who were singing his praises this morning are living, walking miracles, for you have dislodged our hearts from previous affections and idolatries and freed us to know the God and his son who loved us and gave himself for us. Thank you for your word. Gives us direction, instruction for living. I pray that you would be with us, that you would accompany your word with power, give us insight, understanding, give this congregation ears to hear, give me clarity of thinking, and give us all the courage to walk in your truth. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the passage we just read marks a transition in the book of Acts. It's a major transition. The church planting phase of the life of the Apostle Paul is over. From here on out in the book of Acts, it will be Paul, the prisoner of the Lord Jesus. It will be Paul, the apologist for the faith before government officials. Because the rest of the book of Acts deals with Paul's imprisonment, his trials, and defense. And this is probably the least studied section of the New Testament. 
the least study section of the book of Acts. This is kind of like, like the Leviticus of the New Testament, right? You're reading through Leviticus and your Bible reading plan throughout the year. You kind of get through, you know, Genesis, Exodus, exciting. And then you get to Leviticus and you kind of, all these information, right? So 22 on to 29 is kind of like that. You're going to read about a lot of places, a lot of people. It doesn't really grab you, but it should. Let me give you two reasons why. First of all, the amount of space it takes up in the book of Acts. Luke devotes 25% of the book of Acts to Paul's imprisonment and trials. 25%. One-fourth of what Luke wants us to learn from the book of Acts happens while Paul is in prison. And if we just focus on what Luke tells us about Paul in Acts, it takes up 50% of Paul's story. Half of Paul's story in the book of Acts is bound up in his imprisonment and his trials. That should clue us in on how important this is. Secondly, the amount of attention Luke gives to the defense speeches. There are 97 verses of Paul's defense speeches compared to 47 verses of Paul's preaching. Twice as much material in the defense speeches as his sermons. Now, why is this important to Luke? If you recall, the book of Luke and the book of Acts are both addressed to the same figure, to a a person named Theophilus, who many consider to be some kind of important political figure um, because of the way that Luke addresses him in the Gospel of Luke. Oh, most, most excellent Theophilus. That was a title reserved for political leaders of the day. But Luke is not only telling us the history of the church in the book of Acts, how it spread from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth. And he's not only showing us the nature of the church, that it's a family of missionary servants making disciples. He's also presenting to us a defense of the church. And what he wants to his readers to understand, Theophilus and people like him, is that the church is not a political threat. The church is not a political threat. And there's these parallels that happen between Luke's gospel and and the book of Acts. And this is one of the most important ones. In the gospel of Luke, Jesus goes to trial three times. And three times he is declared innocent, not guilty. In the book of Acts, the apostle Paul goes to trial three times. And three times he's declared innocent, not guilty. He has done nothing worthy of death is is, is the, the verdict. So Paul, as a representative of this new faith, undergoes these trials. And what I think Luke wants us to to see is that the church is not a threat to the social order. Because the church is not made up of revolutionaries who take up arms. But it does challenge the social order. Because we are redemptionaries who take up the values of the kingdom of God. We don't take up arms, we lay down our lives. And that means that we will pray for political leaders so that they may govern in such a way that makes for peace. And it also means that at times we will challenge injustice and partiality. So in 1 Timothy 2, Paul encourages the first thing to do, pray. Pray for kings and governors and all those who are in authority. But in Acts, Paul models the second thing, challenging injustice. So we're going to be focusing our time on what happens in the book of Acts. You know, the world of the New Testament is a world very much like our own. A place threatening to tear apart on account of ethnic tensions. 
And at times it's, it's very obvious. Most of the time it lies dormant, but it's awakened when we least expect it. You know, unguarded reactions, comments we let slip out, the way we joke about other people. It shows up everywhere. It shows up in the world of sports, like with the Don Sterling comment, uh, uh, the owner of the Clippers a couple years ago. It shows up in the world of law, as is happening currently. It shows up in political discussions. For example, immigration issues. It shows up in the world of international politics, Middle East crisis, and things like that. So it's no exaggeration to say that the history of the world could be written by which group of people hated the other group of people. But not just groups, individuals as well. Paul describes us all, all of us, before we came to Christ, he describes us in this way in the book of Titus. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. And here's the thing I want you to pay attention to. Hated by others and hating one another. That's our story. But although that kind of hatred is a reality, that's not the true story of the world. The true story of the world is a story of love, of about a good and loving God who has set out on a mission to save the world, a world broken by hatred and by sin. So Paul continues to give us this other counter-narrative. But when the goodness and loving kindness of, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That's the true story of the world that we've been invited to. Delivered from verse 3, hated hated by others and hating one another, and been embraced and enveloped in what God, his nature and his story and what he's doing and loving. The goodness and loving kindness of God intervening to redeem us. The true story of the world is about a glorious God who loves the nations. That's the storyline of the Bible. And we are called as disciples of the Lord Jesus in expressing the love of God to the nations. That's the Great Commission. Make disciples, pantata ethne, of all the nations. And the way we do this is by loving people, serving them, laying down our lives, embodying the gospel and the way we, we live and do everything and verbalizing, expressing vocally the realities of the gospel and calling people to repent. We're supposed to love people because they bear God's image. But the reality is that we tend to love people who bear our image, who look like us, who like the things that we like, who agree with our views. But when, 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 we, when we don't do that, and live according to the values of God's kingdom instead, and we challenge the idols of our culture, the the idols of our particular ethnicities, it may not go well with us. It may not go well with us. It didn't go well with Jesus when he did it. Right? Luke chapter 4, the very first sermon that, pre- that Jesus preached in his hometown in the synagogue of Nazareth where he went to as, as a boy um, with, with people that he knew he came back to preach. And these, these are people he grew up with. These are people he did business with. Probably some of his relatives as well. And he's preaching there um, based on the passage from Isaiah 61. Um, then he preaches. Um, 
He sits down and everybody applauds him. Great sermon, pastor. That was amazing. We're so proud of you. But then he goes on to say, well, I'm not done. And he goes on to talk about how the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. And he gives some Old Testament examples. And all of a sudden, they're not proud of him anymore. All of a sudden, they're not saying, great sermon, pastor. All of a sudden, people he grew up with want to grab him and throw him off a cliff. Same thing is happening here in the book of Acts. Paul is back in Jerusalem, city where he spent much time speaking to his ethnic group of people and speaking to them in the Hebrew language. He calls them brothers. He identifies with them. He expresses love towards them. But the moment he says he's going to go with this message to the Gentiles, they say, away with this fellow from the earth. He is not worthy to live. Well, Paul is there in Jerusalem to present a gift to the suffering saints. And what's beautiful about this is that this gift that he's presenting to the suffering saints, the poor Jewish believers in the city of Jerusalem, is the offering that Paul wrote about in, in um, 2 Corinthians 8, and, and, the, and, the, and the offering that, the, that the, the impoverished Thessalonian Gentile believers sacrificed so deeply to give to the suffering Jewish believers in Jerusalem. That's why this offering was so important to Paul. Yes, to alleviate the needs of the Jewish believers, but also to show that Jewish and Gentile believers are really one. And now he wants to show the love of Gentile believers to their Jewish brethren by giving this offering. That's why he's there. He goes into the temple to worship, again, because of ethnic issues, right? They're like, the leaders of the Jerusalem church are like, Paul, people are tripping on you because you're saying these kinds of things about the Gentiles. that They don't have to obey the law of Moses. We need to show them that you're still down with the law of Moses and, and you're still a good Jew. So would you like shave your head and give this offering, go to the temple, do all this stuff? So he says, man, for the sake of the peace of the church, I'm willing to do whatever. And he does it. So he goes to the temple to worship and he's attacked by a mob to be killed. Why? Ethnic tension. Acts 21, verse 29 says, For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. So they saw Paul, and they saw that where he, hanging around with him was this Ephesian guy, this Gentile guy named Trophimus. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. They supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. He brought a Gentile into the temple. He didn't, but that's what they thought he did. But he did have Gentile friends as he was taking the gospel into the Gentile world. And Paul was hated by Jews for that, even by some Jews in the church, because they looked at him kind of like a sellout, kind of like betraying his people. He's not being a faithful Jew because that happens throughout history, as we've seen, is that people will confuse their faith with their culture, allegiance to their faith with allegiance to their culture. And we do this when we say things like America is a Christian nation. We do this when we look down at others because they're not like us. You know, the, the Jewish people of Paul's day, they were experts in the law of God, but they were strangers to the heart of God. God had called them to serve his purpose. They thought God was there to serve their agenda. And as we learn in Galatians, God is not interested with perpetuating the Jewish lifestyle. 
And today, God is not interested with preserving the American way. His desire is for all the nations to find life in Christ. That's why for believers, it has to be Christ over ethnicity. Christ over ethnicity. But also Christ over empire. Christ over the state. Christ over political parties and affiliations. But we see the church make this mistake over and over again. You know, after 300 years of the church's existence, the church had made such an impact into the Roman Empire that they not only accepted the church, but made it the official state religion. But when the church married the state, that eventually led to the corruption of the church. You know, and it's easy to look back and kind of see the mistakes they made, right? Hindsight is twenty twenty. But it isn't always as easy to see ours. But we make the same species of mistake when we try to line up the gospel with particular political views or, or political parties. But that never works. Because the wine of the gospel will always burst the wineskin of political parties. It blasts liberal views of morality and it blasts conservatives for their lack of compassion. You know, both parties, we could see things about them. They align with the gospel maybe in some ways, but both parties also betrayed the gospel in some ways. Well, Paul ministered and lived in a context where the state demanded ultimate allegiance. Yeah, they were, there were levels of freedom that were afforded to religious groups, like the Jewish people were afforded some levels of freedom for their, for their religious practice. And the Christian church kind of came under that covering for a little while there in the, in the first part of the church. Um, the, the freedom was granted, however, as long as it did not compete with the claims of the state. We may be entering into times like that where Christian convictions are clashing with political policy. And that's why I think the book of Acts is so important for our moment in history because the book of Acts, particularly 22 through 29, show us as believers how to navigate our faith in a context where our culture is hostile to our faith. Luke is doing two things in Acts and that he's showing through the Apostle Paul. That although Paul is a, is a Christian, he's still a faithful Jew. How? Because he's living the fullness of the promises God made to the Jewish people. But he's also showing that Paul, although he is a Christian, he's still a faithful citizen. Because he's living the fullness of what God meant humanity to be. This is one of the great values of this section of Christians of, of Scripture. It shows us how to be both saints and citizens. That the saint has nothing to fear from the gospel. Because it's not Christ against country. Paul was glad to live within the law. He himself says on one of his trials, he said this, he said, if I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything deserving of death, I do not seek to escape death. If I'm guilty, if I'm wrong, then let the law take its course. I'm not against that. Because Paul understood that government is a gift from God. Paul understood that government is a gift of God and we are called to submit to such authorities. That's Romans 13, 1 through 7. We are not to be agitators. We are to be intercessors. Paul tells us we should pray for all those who are in authority, kings, and for all who are in high positions, 1 Timothy 2, verse 2. But not just pray for them like, those idiots really need Jesus. They're so dumb. How could they do those things? But pray for them like you care about them. 
Pray for them like you love them. Pray for them like you want them to do well. Because if they do well, it will go well for all of us. It's kind of like, um, you know, in, in pastoral ministry, you do, you do premarital counseling. And you, you see these, these, you know, this young couple that's in love. And, and at sometimes we have to say, you know, we don't think you should be married right now. Right? And they never listen. They go ahead and get married. And, and even though we were not for the marriage at that time, once they're married... We're for them. We want to step in and do all that we can to help and encourage and pray for them and help them. We want them to succeed. We don't want them to fail. I think that's maybe kind of where we're at in our, in our political state. And maybe you're in a where you didn't want this to happen, but you should not want it to fail. Well, that, that was Paul's approach to, to people in politics. So, to, for Paul, people in politics were not access of evil. That, that, that he prayed for, for from a distance. They were people that Paul got close to. So let me give you some examples. We see in Acts 19, 31, 31 um, where Paul is going to, um, there another mob situation in, in Acts 19. This one's based on economics because the preaching of the gospel impacted the economy of the idolaters and the silversmith, in particular there in the city of Ephesus. And there's this mob that rises up and, and they go to, I mean, thousands of people are now in this theater and, and there's a frenzy and everything's out of control. And Paul is going to go into this mob and try to talk to them. And the Asiarchs say, Paul, don't do that. That's crazy. You're going to get killed. And they persuade Paul to not do that. Who are the Asiarchs? The Asiarchs were people responsible to maintain Caesar worship in the city of Ephesus. And it says, Luke tells us, they were Paul's friends. You think, you think that Paul and the Asiarchs agreed theologically? You think that they agreed politically? But we know that they loved one another. Why? Because if the Asiarchs didn't love Paul, you think they would have stepped in to save him? They would have said, man, do what you're going to do. We're not really, we don't care. But they protected him from being killed. The attitude of Paul was not to denounce political figures, but to befriend them. And because of that, he was able to reach some of them with the gospel. We know that Paul did reach some of them, um, like in Romans 16, 23, read of, 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 of one in particular. The verse says, Gaius, who was a host to me and the whole church greets you. And then this guy here, Erastus, the city treasurer, high-ranking official, came to faith in Christ. In fact, one of the results of Paul's imprisonment is that people in government came to faith in Christ. Look at Philippians 4.22, which Paul wrote from prison, and he said this, he said, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. It could be family members, or it could be people that work for Caesar, people in that political arena. So we can live faithfully as citizens of earthly kingdoms and carry out our mission. And Paul shows us how we can even use our citizenship, our rights as citizens, to our advantage, which we have every right to claim those, but also for the advantage of others and the advance of the gospel. So we can live within the system, participate in the system, protect ourselves, and improve the lives of others. So here we see the goodness of government, protecting peace and maintaining order. Paul was protected by the government so that he could have a fair trial. Remember, he's arrested, and the Jews want to give him a trial right away. And Paul says, what? Hey, as a Roman citizen, I appeal to Caesar because he knew he was not going to get a fair trial where he was at. 
Paul's protected by the government. Chapter 21, Paul is rescued by the mob, from the mob, by the Roman tribune. And if, and if the government representatives had not stepped in, Paul would have died there in the city of Jerusalem at that time. But there's another side to this as well. Because in the book of Acts, we see the government saving Paul's life. But later on, we also know that it's the same Roman government that takes Paul's life. Now, authority in human life is, a legitimate, is legitimate. It's a gift from God. But authority is a gift that can spoil very easily. Authority is a gift that can spoil very easily. That is why the Bible places many warning labels on the gift. The warnings are there again and again because authority can be so easily abused. All throughout the Bible, there are warnings to those in authority not to abuse their authority. For example, parents are authority over their children, but Paul tells parents, parents, do not provoke your children to wrath. All right? Husbands, authority over their wives. But Paul tells husbands in Colossians, do not be harsh toward your wives. Pastors are authority over the church. But Peter tells pastors in 1 Peter 5, do not domineer over the, over the flock. Masters had authority over slaves, but Paul tells masters in Ephesians 6, stop your threatening. Judges are authorities in the, the polity. But or, or Moses in Deuteronomy tells judges, do not be partial to the rich or take bribes. Justice and only justice you shall follow. Kings were authority over their people, but they were commanded to write out a copy of the law with their own hand for the express purpose of fighting pride. Deuteronomy 7 says the king needs to write down with his own hand a copy of this law that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. It's full of these admonitions because the Bible deals honestly with the fallen world. And of the questions facing the church at this juncture of history is... What is our role in civic unrest? What, what should we say? Should we say anything at all? Should we just concern ourselves with the spiritual and let society go as it may? Do we have guidance from the scriptures? I believe that we do. I believe that we have much guidance in the scriptures. I find it of great significance that the first letter, the earliest document of the New Testament, the first letter, the first scripture of the New Testament is the book of James. James is the brother of Jesus. James was known, he had a title that everybody referred to him as, he was called James the Just. James the Just. And if you read his letter, you could see why. In chapter 1, James is a voice for the vulnerable. In chapter 2, James rebukes the church for giving preferential treatment to the rich. In chapter 3, he tells people that you should treat other people with dignity because they're created in the image of God. And in chapter 5, he deals with unjust labor relations when he tells the business owners of the congregation, pay your workers fairly and on time. He sounds more like a minor prophet than he does an apostle. But that's the first letter of the New Testament. But you don't hear about those things often in Sunday school. But what about the abuse of power? What about things like police brutality? Does the Bible have anything to say about this issue for us? How would 
let's say the Apostle Paul respond to police brutality? Well, fortunately for us, we don't have to conjecture. We don't have to guess because Paul was a victim of police brutality and the abuse of authority three times in the book of Acts. And every time he responded in exactly the same way. We're going to briefly look at one of them. But the modern practice of policing, as we know policing today, can be traced to 17th century France. And almost immediately it was accompanied by brutality. Remember the warnings? One historian reports on the routine bludgeoning of citizens by patrolmen. So history tells us that it happens. Cell phone videos tell us that it happens. Facebook Live tells us that police brutality happens. And it also tells us where it happens. It happens disproportionately among the poor and among the marginalized. Those without power, those without a voice. I'm from the city of San Jose, California, and... Right before I left there to come here about two and a half years ago, there was a case in my neighborhood at the local Motel 6 where, where a police officer was called to respond to a domestic violence situation. So a lady was being beaten by her boyfriend or husband or somebody like that. She called the police. They came out, and they asked the, the gentleman to leave, um, and everything was great. But uh, just a little while longer, one of the police officers came back by himself and raped the woman who was an undocumented alien. Um, because thinking, she's not going to say anything. What's she going to say? If she's going to go to the authorities, then she could get deported. Um, but she did say something. And the, there was a case that went on about, about that. Um, now, if these are the kinds of interaction policemen have in certain communities, there will never be healthy police and citizen relations in those communities. And if we don't take those things into account, Fernando Castillo and cases like that will never make any sense to us. Because if that's not your narrative, those are just isolated instances. But if that is your narrative, it's a cumulative thing that's kind of been building up for your life and for some of us for generations. Um, I'm from California, like I mentioned, and California Chicano culture, we have a pretty intense car culture. Um, low riders and things like that. So you you may not be um, old enough to remember like that Ice Cube video, The Good Day, where he's in that green 64 Impala. That's like all of our dream car, right? (laughs) Growing up, all Chicano boys, they wanted a 64 Chevy Impala. Um, So so that's, that's, that's what I love those kinds of things. So my dad gave me a 1995 GMC Sierra. He had it in the backyard. Um, it was just sitting there. And I'm like, yo, dad, what are you going to do with this truck? It's just sitting there, right? So, so let me take it off your hands. And I had a friend that, that did some custom body and fender repair. Man, and we took this truck and we put a, a, a Cadillac front clip on it. We shaved the door handles. We capped the bed rails. We, put a, we capped the, the bed. We put those um, 1991 Cadillac taillights, you know, the skinny ones that go like that. We Frenched them in. We, we, I mean, we smoothed that whole thing out, right? And, I loved that truck. It was amazing. But I couldn't drive it. Almost all the time that I would drive this truck, I would get pulled over. Too many times. And I'm driving down McLaughlin Avenue, going to my office at the church, and I'm pulled over, and I'm sitting on the curb while they're searching my vehicle. 
And I just had like, it's not a good look for the pastor to be pulled over all the time on the street, right? So I gave it to my brother. I said, I'm tired of dealing with this. You, you can have it. It's not, it's, it's not worth it. Um, but that's just a little thing. But it, it bugs you. It bothers you because no, there was no reason for it. Well, Paul was profiled as powerless in his, in his culture, and he was treated as such. Three times when he was arrested, uncondemned, but still beaten or threatened with a beating. And three times that we know of, and at every occurrence, Paul's response is the same. I think it's instructive for us. There's a consistent example that, if anything, at least sets a precedent for our reaction to the abuse of authority and police brutality in our own day. And the main case that stands out is in Acts 16 um, and, and the city of Philippi, where Paul is arrested and put in jail. So you know the story. Right, Paul and Silas are accused of being troublemakers, again, because he hit the fortune tellers in their pocketbooks when, when he cast out the demon from the slave girl. So he hit us in our pocketbooks. We don't like this guy. So they got the whole city against him. So Paul and Silas, they get arrested. They get beaten. They get thrown in jail. And what happens while they're in jail? Right? They start singing praises to God at midnight, and there's an earthquake, and the doors are open, and... And the, the, the jailer doesn't know what's going on. He thinks everybody's escaped, and he's about to fall on his sword and kill himself. And Paul reaches out of the darkness and says, hey, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Um, and then he takes him to his, the jailer takes him to his house. He hears the gospel. The jailer gets baptized in the middle of the night somewhere. And then they go back to jail. And we've all heard this sermon, right? And it ends there. And the application of that sermon is worship during the worst of times. You heard that sermon? You heard that application? Well, for Luke, the story didn't end there. The story's not over. So after the baptism, they go back to jail. And in the morning, they were ordered to be released. And here's where it gets interesting. So the guys come and say, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and listen to the irony of this. Go in peace. They're all beat up and they're all... Go in peace. And you expect... Wow, praise God. We can go. But no. Look at Paul's response in verse 37, Acts 16, 37, where he holds them accountable for their actions. He says, they have beaten us publicly. They have executed a punishment. Uncondemned. There's been no trial. Upon men who are Roman citizens, we have rights. But because of Paul's appearance and they profile him as a non-citizen. They have put us in prison without due cause, and now they want to throw us out secretly? They want to sweep this under the rug and act like nothing happened? No, Paul says. That's his response. And now we believe that every word of God is breathed out by God and profitable, right? So consider Paul's no for a moment. Feel the weight of his protest. No. Feel the Feel his awareness of injustice. No. Feel his indignation. No. Feel his sense of obligation to say something. Now I can imagine someone saying to Paul, Paul, you're an apostle, not an activist. So why are you concerned about this? After all, look, the jailer and his whole family got saved. God used this for good. It was part of God's plan. But Paul wouldn't drop it. He demanded that it be addressed. And look at what happened in verse 38. 
The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. As long as they're not citizens, you could do whatever you want with them. But when they have citizens, they have rights. So I, one, one judge in early immigration policy debate said, citizenship is, is the essential human rights because citizenship is the right to have rights. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So in essence, Paul won the case. They admitted they're wrong. They received an apology and an escort out of the city. And now I can imagine someone asking me, because someone did ask me on one occasion when I was talking about this. They said, are you comparing a Philando Castile to the Apostle Paul? I said, no. I'm comparing the Apostle Paul to a Philando Castile. Philando may not have been like Paul. I don't know. But Paul experienced what Philando experienced in being a victim of abuse of authority. In each case, there was excessive force. In each case, there was no trial. In each case, there was a punishment meted out without a guilty verdict. And there was a violation of their rights as citizens. And it boils down to this. Injustice occurred. Paul confronted it. Time doesn't allow us to look at the other examples in Acts 22 where Paul is almost beaten by the Roman soldiers and they lay him out and they got the whips ready out and say, ah, can you really do this to a citizen? Or Acts 23 where Paul is punched in the face at the command of the high priest and Paul responds to that as well. But here's what I need you to understand. That the same Paul who commands us all to submit to legitimate government authority in Romans 13 it's the same Apostle Paul we see here confronting the illegitimate use of authority. Right? We need pastors who can do both. And in doing so, Paul becomes, I believe, a pattern of holding derived authority accountable to a higher authority. Yes, government has authority, but they are under the authority of God. And he becomes an example of confronting injustice without resorting to injustice himself as he seeks to establish what's right without expressing wrath. But, but why was this so important to, to Paul? Why would Paul not let it go? Luke doesn't tell us specifically, but here's what I think is happening. Paul understood that he was not standing on trial as Paul the individual. He was standing trial before the Roman Empire as Paul the representative of the Christian faith. And whatever happened to Paul would implicate the church at large. If he allowed this injustice, that would set a precedent in the empire. If it did not go, and it would not go well for the believers after him, right? If they can treat the representative of the faith like this, what can they do to the rest of them? So as we stated in the introduction, Luke is not only telling us the history of the church, how it spread from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth, he's also presenting an apologetic for the church and teaching us that the church is not a threat to the social order because we are not revolutionaries who take up arms but it does challenge the social order because we are redemptionaries who lay down our lives and take up the values of the kingdom of God. And one of those values is justice. So we must join with Paul and cry, no, when we see it happening. For if injustice gains a foothold in our society, it will trample untold numbers of people. And as human beings, this should bother us because bearers of God's image should not, be tr- should, should not be treated with indignity. As citizens, this should concern us because we're called by God to love our neighbors. 
And MLK said this about justice and love. He said, justice is love correcting that which would work against love. Justice is love correcting that which would work against love. As believers, this should concern us because God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation between broken sinners and their God and reconciliation amongst broken sinners and themselves. In Romans 5, Paul tells us we have been justified by faith and we have peace with God. But in Ephesians 2, Paul says that Jesus Christ, because of what he done on the cross, breaks, breaks down the, the wall of hostility and now he is our peace. He is our peace with one another. But because of long history of hostility, this is no easy resolution. There's no easy resolution to the issues that confront us. It's going to cost us much thinking, discussing, dialogue, action on these things. But it will cost others so much more if we don't think and dialogue and act on the things that we need to act on. And the need for the hour, I believe, is clarity on, as to the issues conviction as to our role and our responsibilities, compassion for all those who are involved, and courage to say and do what we need to say and do. And as we stand as people of the cross, standing as the people of the cross, radiating the meaning of the cross as the place where justice and mercy come together, and from the high ground of Calvary, we have the vision that we need to fulfill our fundamental job description as human beings, which is in Micah 6, 8. He has told you, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the promise of the Lord Jesus would be powerful in our lives. The promise when he said, I will be with you. We need the Lord Jesus with us as we seek to walk these things out, reminding us, sobering us, chastening us, rebuking us, encouraging us, modeling for us um, how to respond to the varied and difficult situations in which we find ourselves, Lord. And I pray, I pray that Churches like Cornerstone would be a beautiful witness and a testimony of the reconciling power of the gospel. That they would model the heart of God the Father, seeking, saving the lost. That it would show the world, the family that he is building and radiate and represent his character for the world. Not just in their proclamation, but in the way they relate to one another and and the way they do life. Give them this grace, Father. We ask it in Christ's name.